Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Zulma Zavala, Chair of the Board of Directors for the Center for Community Solutions. I am pleased to introduce today's speaker, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University at Albany SUNY and author of Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile, Police, and Punish the Poor, Dr. Virginia Eubanks. Dr. Eubanks is here to deliver the Eugene H. Friedheim Lecture of the Center for Community Solutions. Eugene Friedheim was a prominent Cleveland attorney who together with his wife, Mina, was active in a number of Cleveland charitable organizations. He saw the Center for Community Solutions as having a key role as a planner and community convener. This lecture fund was established by his family and friends to extend his humanitarian influence into the future. We are grateful for the contributions made by the Friedheim family to Cleveland's future. When we hear the phrase disruptive technologies, we often think of tools unpending the status quo. Companies like Uber or Airbnb or innovations like artificial intelligence or driverless cars. However, the algorithms and software architecture that power these innovations are already in use every day, often with devastating consequences. Today, decision-making for of social service and safety net programs, everything from Medicaid to food stamps, housing and rental assistance to child welfare is controlled not by human beings, but by computer models programmed to follow a predetermined set of criteria. Proponents argue that this system is more efficient, saving caseworkers thousands of hours of paperwork. However, what if these automated systems are actually a form of discrimination? Working to perpetuate rather than eliminate the inequality they aim to address. This is the question Dr. Eubanks explores in her new book, Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile, Police, and Punish the Poor. And we'll hear more about her findings today. For two decades, Dr. Eubanks has worked in community technology and economic justice movements. She came to her research on technology poverty, and women's citizenship through a history of activism in community media and technology center movements. She joined the faculty at the University at Albany SUNY in 2004. Dr. Eubanks co-founded the Popular Technology Workshops, which serve as a place for ordinary people to come together to define and combat the social, economic, and political injustices of the information age. She also among the founders of Our Knowledge, Our Power, Surviving Welfare, a grassroots welfare rights and anti-poverty organization, is a founding member of the Our Data Bodies Project, and it is a fellow at New America. She holds a Bachelor of Arts from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and a Master's of Science in Rhetoric and Communication, and a PhD in Science and Technology, both from the Rensselaer Polytechnic uh, Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Dr. Virginia Eubanks.
Good afternoon. How are we doing? Everybody well fed but not sleepy yet? <laughs> okay, so eat some cookies. Um, no, I'm actually going to try to keep it kind of uh, kicky in terms of pace today. So hopefully um, your coffee and your cookies will battle um, the wonderful meal you just had and we'll all stay present for a really fantastic conversation and what I think is a really important conversation. Um, so I just want to start by thanking, of course, the City Club of Cleveland for this incredibly generous invitation um, and the Center for Community Solutions as well for the support and for the incredible, the important work they do in Cleveland and, and many other places. Um, and all of you, of course, for being here and being willing to, to engage in some of the really difficult issues that I talk about um, in the book, Automating Inequality. And I so appreciate you using the, the subtitle, um, How High-Tech Tools Profile Police and Punish the Poor. Um, so I'm here today to talk about what I call in the book the digital poorhouse, which I see as this invisible institution that's made up of decision-making algorithms, automated eligibility processes, and statistical models in our nation's social service programs. And I want to talk today specifically about how the rise of the digital poorhouse responds to and recreates this sort of narrative of austerity, which is a story that there's not enough for everyone and that we have to make really hard decisions about who deserves to attain their basic human rights. So we often like to describe our newest technologies as disruptors, which you mentioned, um, but the digital tools that we find specifically in public service programs, I argue in the book, are really more evolution than revolution. Um, and their roots actually go really, really far back in our history, uh, at least until the 1820s. So you're going to have to forgive me as I take a very brief um, tour through a, a one or two very important moments in history that, that give you some context for why these tools are turning out the way they are. Um, I always uh, sort of offer up a great gratitude to my editor at this point, Elizabeth Isagard at um, St. Martin's, because my history chapter in the book was originally 90 pages long, because <laughs> I'm um, a really obsessive about historical rabbit holes and fascinated by them, and she helped me understand that not everybody might be as interested in like the color that the pauper patches that they had to wear, and right, so um, I'm going to give you the briefest version of what was a, eventually became a svelte little 20 27-page um, chapter of 400 years of the history of poverty in the United States. Um, so I'm just going to share one moment with you, which is um, a right around the, the, the Depression of 1819, which was an enormous economic cas uh, catastrophe for the country, um, because that's a moment where economic in elites of the United States became really, really concerned both about the growth of poverty, but more specifically about the growth of poor and working people's activism um, around their own survival and their rights. And so what they did was um, commission a number of really high-level reports and research projects to discover what the sort of real problem at the root of um, the economic suffering that followed the Depression of 1819 was. And they framed their question as, what's the real problem? Is it poverty? Is it the lack of resources? Or is it pauperism, which for them at the time was a phrase they used to describe dependence on public benefits, right? So, I mean, does anyone want to guess uh, how the, the reports came down? Was it poverty or was it dependence on public benefits? Poverty or pauperism? Actual question, anyone want to guess? Oh, there, yeah, that's a surprise, right? So it was pauperism um, was the problem, not poverty. Um, and their solution then to the, the problem of the, uh, the suffering that families were um, uh, engaged in in, in er, the early 1820s was to build an actual physical brick-and-mortar institution called the county poorhouse, one in every county in the United States, that made the conditions of accepting public assistance, that is, your fair share of our shared resources as a country, made the conditions of applying for those resources so grave that um, no one but the most desperate person would ever possibly choose to ask for those resources. So just quickly, the kinds of conditions on support in a poorhouse included giving up established rights, if you already had them, including the right to vote, hold office, and marry. Again, this is 1820, so that's mostly just white men who had those rights, um, but they had to give them up if they um, entered the poorhouse. 
Um, parents who entered the poorhouse often had to give up their children because it was understood at the time that you could rehabilitate poor children by putting them in contact with wealthier families, mostly as domestic or agricultural laborers. Um, and finally, the death rates at these institutions um, were as high as 30% annually, meaning a third of the people who entered poorhouses um, died every year. Um, Cleveland, by the way, uh, uh, combined the functions of uh, prisons and poorhouses um, at the workhouse at, at um, Cooley Farms. So y'all had one too. Um, the original intention was to have one in every county. We never got that far because it turned out that they were really expensive and didn't work the way that folks expected them to. Um, so, but we did end up with at least a thousand of them um, across the country. Um, so I use the metaphor of the digital poorhouse in the book to illustrate of what I think of as the deep social programming of the big data and digital tools that we're now seeing in social services. Um, because at their heart, often, is a decision that we made back in the 1820s that public service programs should act more as moral thermometers, separating the deserving from the undeserving, diverting the able and enforcing work, rather than as a universal floor underneath us all. And we're gonna to return to that point um, at the end. But first, let me talk a little bit about the book. Because what I want us to do today is to think a little bit together, not just about history, but about this political moment about why these specific tools have become popular at this precise time. I don't think that's an accident. I believe that high-tech tools for establishing eligibility, for predicting behavior, and for measuring program effectiveness have risen to prominence right now for three reasons, and I hope we'll have time to talk about all three of these briefly. Um, the first is that they rationalize and they recreate a politics of austerity, this narrative that says we don't have enough for everyone. The second is that while they promise to address bias in social services, they actually just hide it. And third, they create what I think of as empathy overrides that ease the emotional burden of making what I believe are inhumanly difficult decisions about who among America's 43 million poor people deserve support. Okay, so I'm gonna go through each one of those quickly, and I'm gonna do this without knocking into the mic. For those of you on the radio, I am having a drink of water. I'm gonna do, I'm gonna make funny gestures or something so you all laugh and the people on the radio don't know why. Um, okay, so uh, we have limited time and I'm already rolling. So um, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna try to do this a little, quick, uh, a little quickly. So first um, is this idea that the digital poorhouse assumes austerity and because it assumes austerity, it recreates it. So for example, um, I dedicate automating inequality to a severely disabled little girl named Sophie Stipes from Tipton, Indiana. When Sophie was six, she received a letter that explained that she would be losing her Medicaid because she had failed to cooperate in establishing eligibility for the program. Um, and this happened just as she was gaining weight thanks to a life-saving feeding tube and learning to walk for the first time. So the Stipes family was caught up in an attempt to automate the eligibility process, um, processes for all of the welfare programs in the state of Indiana. In 2006, then-Governor Mitch Daniels signed what was eventually a $1.34 billion, with a B, dollar contract with a consortium of high-tech companies that included IBM and Affiliated Computer Systems, or ACS, to create a system that replaced the hands-on work of local welfare caseworkers with online applications and private regional call centers. And the result was a million benefit denials in the first three years of the experiment, which was a 54% increase from the three years before the experiment. And most folks were denied for failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. What that meant is that someone somewhere in the process had made a mistake. Either the client had forgotten to you know, sign page 34 of a 60-page application, or a call center worker made a mistake in interpreting policy and gave them bad advice, or the computer system itself could have made an error, um, could have not recognized a pay check as proof of income, for example, because it was only programmed to recognize pay stubs. And I use that as an example because that actually happened to Lindsay Kidwell in the book. Um, but failure to cooperate notices only said there was an error, not what the error was. And because it had severed the relationship between applicants and local caseworkers by moving 1,500 county caseworkers into privatized regional call centers, 
It guaranteed that the burden of finding and fixing any mistake fell squarely and solely on the shoulders of those requesting services, some of the state's most vulnerable people. And also, I'll say they're allies in the community, but not necessarily um, county workers. So libraries played a huge role in this. Um, Indiana Legal Services played a huge role in this. And community organizations, including the local township offices, played a huge role in supporting people through this um, catastrophe. So this created enormous hardship for poor and working families. And so Kim Stipe, Sophie's mom, told me, during that time, my mind was muddled because it was so stressful. All of my focus was on getting Sophie back on that Medicaid and then crying afterwards because everyone was calling us white trash, moochers. It was like being sucked up into this vacuum of nothingness. But the experiment also cost the state more generally. Um, so after really intense public pressure uh, led by a number of um, really insightful organizers, um, the governor actually terminated the contract with IBM just three years into a tenure contract, calling automated eligibility a good idea that just didn't work out in practice. Um, then IBM sued the state for breach of contract and won. So originally, the company was allowed to keep not only the half billion dollars they had already spent for a system that denied a million applications for public benefits, um, but they were also awarded an additional $50 million in penalties for breach of contract. Um, nine years later, the case is still ongoing, um, and the resources that have been spent to create, implement, and legally defend the system could have all gone to providing services. Okay, so that's this point around the creation and recreation of austerity, right? If you assume austerity, um, then you have a tendency to recreate it in the way um, your contracts are designed, your technology is designed, and the way that you deal with people. So second point, um, these new deci digital decision-making tools um, are often, often promise to identify and remove bias, but usually in, in reality, what they often do is just hide it. So one example from the book, um, that I talk about is a system in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, called the, which is where Pittsburgh is, called the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, which is a statistical model that's supposed to be able to predict which children might be victims of abuse or neglect in the future in Allegheny County. So in Allegheny County, I spoke with Patrick Grebe and Angel Shepherd, among um, a lot of other parents um, and families who had dealt with the Children, Youth, and Family Services there. And they're really engaged, really creative parents who nevertheless have been red flagged several times for child neglect by the uh, county's Office of Children, Youth, and Family Services. So Patrick and Angel's primary crime is that they're poor. Um, Patrick was found guilty of child neglect, for example, when he couldn't afford his daughter's antibiotic prescription after an emergency room visit. Um, and they live in a kind of constant low-grade terror that this new statistical model, the AFST, will target their daughter or granddaughter for a child welfare investigation and potentially for removal to foster care. So it's important to understand a little bit about the model so you can understand where, um, where the fears are coming from. So the, the model was built on top of a data warehouse that was built in originally in 1999 that currently, as of the writing of the book, held one billion records, more than 800 for every resident of Allegheny County. Um, but of course, these, um, uh, this data is not collected equally on every member of, um, of Allegheny County. So it primarily is built on data that's collected from um, use patterns in uh, public and social services. So there are data extracts that are regularly collected from adult and juvenile probation, the jails and prisons, county mental, mental health services, the state office of income maintenance, 20 public schools, and other agencies that primarily serve poor and working families. So the limitations of this data set are actually really important to the way the model works and the kinds of things it's able to predict. Because it relies almost entirely on information that's only collected on families who reach out for help to public assistance programs. So professional middle class families also reach out for help for their parenting, right? Um, and, and probably get equal amounts of help. Um, but because they pay for it through private insurance or out of pocket, their data doesn't end up in the data warehouse and therefore doesn't end up in the model, right? So um, professional middle class families might get childcare support from babysitters or nannies. They might get, um, but they pay for it out of pocket. They might get help with a mental health issue or with a addiction recovery services, but they pay for it for, with private insurance. 
So their data doesn't end up in this model. And that's really important for two reasons. One is um, the, the concern that parents shared with me. So parents mostly shared the concern around false positives, which just means um, seeing problems where no problems actually exist. And that's uh, easy to understand from parents' point of view. right? So parents feel like, because the system only gathers information on poor and working neighborhoods and families, um, that it over-surveils the poor and creates a feedback loop, right? Very, very similar to some of the critiques that you've probably heard of predictive policing, right? If you over-police certain neighborhoods or if you over-serve certain neighborhoods, if you have children, youth, and family services, then you gather more data about those neighborhoods and those families, which means you identify more problems in those neighborhoods and families, which puts more data into the system, which creates a loop, which means more intervention, more data, um, and becomes um, what my colleague at the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, Hamid Khan, calls a feedback loop of injustice. So parents believe or feel that the system is confusing parenting while poor with poor parenting. On the other hand, from caseworkers, specifically from intake caseworkers who work the um, hotline where they get calls from um, uh, community members, anonymous community members about um, their suspicions about abuse or neglect, and they receive reports from mandated reporters who are legally required to report any suspicion of abuse or neglect um, because they work with children. Um, these intake caseworkers are really concerned about false negatives problems. And that means not seeing harm where harm might be happening, right? So for intake workers often felt or expressed to me that because there wasn't data about professional middle-class families, that the model might be missing really key variables that makes its make its predictions unreliable. So for example, there's good evidence that geographic isolation um, often is highly correlated with abuse or neglect. Um, or maltreatment. Um, but that data won't appear in the data warehouse because it only relies on data from public services, which mostly go to folks in Allegheny County who live in Pittsburgh itself or in the sort of impoverished suburbs that ring the city, right? So they might be missing really key parts of the um, maltreatment um, puzzle. So the model designers and the children, youth, and family administrators who I spoke to um, told me that part of the purpose of the system is to root out bias in those intake call screener um, that who I spoke to, their decision making. Um, so, and this is important, right? Like, so uh, racial, class, and gender bias um, have caused enormous um, injustices in the public service system since its founding. And so it's really, it's legitimate and important to concentrate on that. The problem is that they, these models don't actually remove bias, they simply move it, right? So in Allegheny County, the model moves discretion from frontline caseworkers, which are, by the way, the most working class, the most female, and the most diverse part of the social service workforce. And they move it instead to international teams of economists and data scientists who build the models. So part of the problem is that the system's designers only address bias as a property of individuals. So people who implicitly or explicitly hold discriminatory beliefs that structure their decision making based on race, class, other factors. Um, but of course, inequity is also systemic and structural. So in fact, the county's own research shows that the great majority of racial disproportion in their system comes not from intake call screening, um, but from the community itself who report three and a half times more often on black and biracial families than they do on white families. Um, by limiting intake workers' discretion, one of my great fears is the system may actually limit their ability to correct for the over-reporting that happens in the community and may end up worsening inequity, which would be a huge, um, a huge catastrophe in Allegheny County. Who's, they've actually made great strides around disproportionality there. Um, and finally, and very quickly, I want to say that these tools often serve as empathy overrides. Um, and my worst fear is that we might allow them to outsource to computers the most difficult decisions we face as a society. So for example, the system that I explore in Los Angeles, which is called the Coordinated Entry System, advocates call it the Match.com of homeless services. Um, coordinated Entry is uh, widely used across the country, not just in Los Angeles, but in Los Angeles, its impacts and the stakes are incredibly visible, right? There are 58,000 unhoused people in Los Angeles County alone. 
and a full 75% of them are completely unsheltered, so living in sidewalk encampments or cars. Um, so the system basically works by assigning each unhoused person a score on a spectrum of vulnerability from, from 1 to 17. Um, and coordinated entry actually serves folks at the top pretty well, people who are most vulnerable to some of the worst consequences of homelessness, death, emergency room visits, mental health crisis. Um, and the system actually serves people on the lower side of the scale, the sort of zeros to fours, pretty well as, um, as well. The crisis homeless, who only need a small investment to recover from something like an eviction or foreclosure or job loss or domestic violence. Um, but then there are the 30,000 people that the system has surveyed and classified, risk ranked, um, but who never receive any services. People like Gary Boatwright, um, who's strong enough to survive, but not able to get back on his feet by himself. So um, um, from Gary's point of view, um, the problem is not really his cooperative, I'm sorry, his comparative vulnerability, it's simple math. So there's not enough housing in Los Angeles for the county's 58,000 unhoused people. So he told me, people like me who are somewhat higher functioning are not getting housing. It's another way of kicking the can down the road. In order to house the homeless, you have to have the available units. Show me the units, otherwise you're just lying. So my greatest fear is that um, we are allowing these computerized, these objective and neutral computerized systems um, to act as empathy overrides, right? To um, ease the burden of the decision of who among the 58,000 unhoused people in Los Angeles are we gonna give resources to and who do we allow to stay on the street? Um, and I think if we allow these tools to act as empathy overrides, they'll radically limit our political vision and they'll absolve us of the responsibility we have to care for one another. Um, all of us to care for all of us, right? So I can hear um, skeptics now, right? Scary stories sell books. So Virginia, you obviously cherry picked the worst cases, the most frightening systems you could find. Um, but here's the reality. Okay, Indiana was pretty bad. Indiana's a pretty worst case scenario in many ways. I don't know what was in Go Governor Daniels' heart, um, but it's easy to believe that this is a case of bad intention, bad design, bad implementation, bad outcomes. But in Los Angeles and Allegheny counties, the designers, the administrators, the caseworkers I spoke to were all incredibly bright, very well-intentioned people who cared deeply about the well-being of the people their agencies serve. And in both places, designers have actually done almost all the things that progressive critics of algorithmic decision-making ask them to do. They have been mostly, not entirely, but mostly transparent about what's in the model and what's in their algorithms. So they've released things like um, Allegheny County released all of the predictive variables in their model. They did not release the weights of those variables, which turns out to be really important because you can't tell whether a certain variable makes your score higher or lower unless you have the weights. Um, but they did release um, the variables. Um, the systems that I describe in LA and in uh, Allegheny County are held in public agencies or public-private partnerships, so there's some measure of democratic accountability. I mean, they even used some processes of participatory design. So in other words, these are some of our best systems, not some of our worst. So here's a challenging thought. What if the problem with the coming age of AI and machine learning and social services is not broken systems, not technological mistakes, but rather that the digital systems we're creating carry out the imperative to limit access and police the behavior of the poor too well. So the designers of all the systems I study for this book agreed on one thing. Data analytics, matching algorithms, automated decision making are regrettable but necessary systems for triage, for deciding whose life is immediately threatened by economic and racial inequality and who can wait. But the decision to triage at all is a political choice. So in the absence of a commitment of resources, a level of magnitude greater than we've ever seen before, what we're doing is actually not triage. It's automated rationing. So I wrote the book because we deserve better. Our people deserve better, our communities deserve better, and I believe the fundamental danger of the digital poorhouse is that it demands that we think small, that we work within these arbitrarily imposed limits both to our resources and to our vision. 
But this political moment and justice itself demands that we think big, that we push back against austerity fever, particularly now, right? With an administration that's signaling further cuts, further efficiencies, and further diversion. Um, and I have um, some solutions that maybe will come up in, 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 um, in Q&A, because um, I do want to talk about those. Um, but I just want to signal quickly to three areas of solution. Um, because I, you know, people often when I when I do these talks, they really want me to give them like a five point plan for creating better technologies, um, and I uh, I so appreciate that opportunity, but I have to pass um, on that opportunity because I actually believe that um, the reason I place this in context in historical context, the reason I talk to families who are most um, impacted one on one, is because these problems are much deeper. And these technologies, I believe, are acting more like um, diagnostics um, of they're showing us where we have deep and lasting inequities that have been sped up and scaled up, that have been amplified by these technologies, not necessarily created by them, but are certainly being amplified that, by them unless we make some real changes. So quickly, I think three things that need to happen. Um, first is we have to change the story on who is poor in America, right? We have this crazy story in the United States that poverty is an aberration. Um, it is not. Uh, in fact, 51, based on Mark Rank's fantastic life cycle work on, on poverty, 51% of us will be below the poverty line at some point in our adult lives. That's between the ages of 20 and 64. And a full two-thirds of us will receive means-tested public benefits. That's straight welfare. That's not like reduced price school lunches. That's not Social Security. So poverty is a majority issue in the United States already. It doesn't mean we all um, uh, interact with it equally, right? Like if you are a person of color, if you're born poor, if you have physical or mental health issues, if you're caring for other people, you're more likely to um, be poor and it's harder to escape poverty once you're there, but poverty is a majority issue already. So it's crazy that the politics of public assistance um, are all about means testing, punishing, um, diverting people from public programs. So they, they spend so much of their effort and so much of their resources deciding who deserves help, um, and I believe they should shift instead to an approach based in universal human rights. So that's just deciding as a country that there's a line below which no one is allowed to go for any reason. Doesn't matter what your choices are. Doesn't matter what you look like. No one in the United States goes hungry. No one in the United States lives in a tent on the sidewalk. No family in the United States is split up because parents can't afford a child's medication. No. So in other places around the world, um, these conditions would be considered human rights violations. And here, we're beginning to think of them as systems engineering problems. And I think that um, says terrible things about the state of our national soul and about our real commitment to ending economic and racial inequality. Um, and finally, in the meantime, because these technologies are not going to stop while we get our souls right around poverty, um, we have to figure out a way to develop and design less harmful technologies. And I'm happy to talk about that more in the Q&A. So if we're to have a more just future, we have to build it on purpose, brick by brick and bite by bite. If we outsource our moral responsibility to care for each other to computers, we have no one but ourselves to blame when these systems supercharge discrimination and automate inequality. Um, thank you so much for your patience, for your attention. And I look forward to our conversation. She just thanked us for our patience. And it's like, I want to like hit rewind and like just sit with all of that again. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here at the City Club, and today we're enjoying a forum with Dr. Virginia Eubanks, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University at Albany, SUNY, and author of Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile, Police, and Punish the Poor. We're about to begin our Q&A with all of you, and we welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our radio broadcast or our webcast. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will work it into the program. If you're here and you'd like to ask a question, raise your hand, and our team will find you with one of their microphones. We ask you to stand up to ask your question, and make sure your questions are brief and to the point so we can get to as many as possible. And our actual questions. And our actual questions. Exactly. <laughs> Holding the microphones today are content coordinator Bliss Davis and uh, City Club intern Roz Midorsky. May we have our first question, please. 
Hi, good afternoon. Hi. I'm so glad you're here. My name is Merle Johnson. I'm on the State Board of Education. Yeah. And I think one of the uh, most serious areas in the state of Ohio where uh, the poor are punished is through this obsession with state testing, standardized mm -hmm. testing, in which testing is done with computers. And in our, uh, many of our poor urban and rural areas, uh, students do not have computers at home. Mm -hmm. uh, third graders are asked to drag and copy and paste, and teachers are not allowed to help them. And so it comes out uh, looking like our children do not know um, the information when they do. So my, my question is, what are your thoughts on that? And number two, did that subject ever come up in your conversations uh, with parents? Yeah, That's, Merle, thank you so much for that, that question. It's a really important one. Um, and I will say that though I don't talk about uh, education in the book, um, I think this is another place in our public services where the, the impact of technology as an amplifier of existing inequalities um, is really visible, um, particularly if we don't design with another purpose in mind, right? If we're not more conscious and more thoughtful about the way we create these tools and implement these tools. So um, I've spent the last five months sort of running around talking about the book, and one of the things that always comes up in the Q&A is the role of technology in, in education. I think it's super important. Um, there are some really fantastic groups around the country starting to really push back um, on database systems in schools. Um, and so while it didn't come up in the research I did for the book, um, it's clearly uh, incredibly and increasingly important. Um, so I'm looking for that, let's put this out on the radio, I'm looking for that book like uh, that's about um, you know, similar processes that I describe in automating inequality happening in education. Um, I will point to one thing, which is Kathy O'Neill's really fantastic book, Weapons of Math Destruction. One of the cases that she talks about is the value-added model in education, which is the, so you know this already, which is how teachers, um, the sort of algorithm that rate, ranks teachers um, supposedly on the quality of their performance. Um, but, but people often say on the quantity of resources they have available to them and then um, create real challenges to, to keeping a job as a teacher in an under-resourced um, school district. So she does a really nice job with that. Um, the other thing I don't talk about in the book at all is law enforcement. Um, and that's not because I don't think it's crucial and that not because I don't think that these processes are happening in similar and important ways. Um, but because um, I think of the book as an invitation to think um, about policing beyond law enforcement, right? So uh, again, a colleague of mine from Stop LAPD Spying, uh, Mariela Saba, says, you know, like policing wears many uniforms. And one of the invitations that I hope this book offers is the opportunity to think about um, how we police poor and working communities, not just through their interactions with law enforcement, but through their interactions with welfare services, with child protective, with uh, homeless services, and also through education, right? So I think there's a lot of room to do that work, and I, I, welcome, uh, I welcome that work. I'm excited about that work, and I, I thank you for, for, that, for that invitation for someone out there to do it. Yeah, thanks. Hi, um, so you just mentioned you don't focus specifically on law enforcement, mm -hmm. but one of the areas in which I've seen this algorithmic approach um, applied with uh, increasing frequency is uh, in the criminal justice system, particularly in bail reform and um, automated sentencing. And I'm wondering, um, as we see these tools begin to roll out more and more frequently, um, and as we hear it said again and again that these tools are race blind because they're not looking at race, they're looking at housing status or income or um, familial or marital status, none of which tie to race at all, none of which, you know. Um, how do we help to facilitate a conversation about the ways in which many of these protective factors in our society are deeply informed by race, by poverty, by these other factors? Um, and how do, how do we sort of begin a robust conversation in situations where we are maybe able to exert some soft power um, when we're looking to implement these tools? Yeah, thanks, it's a really, also a really important, you guys are great, man. You have, you practiced this, you guys have great questions. Um, so, um, yay City Club. Uh, 
so what I want to talk about here, and I appreciate the opportunity because I didn't get a chance to work this into my earlier remarks, is about um, what are known as proxies. Um, so proxies uh, are basically in statistical modeling um, when you are trying to uh, predict uh, an outcome that you want or you don't want. That's called an outcome variable. Now often, uh, like in baseball, modeling baseball, the outcome variables are really clear cut, right? It's like, uh, did you get a hit or not? Did you get a home run or did you, uh, you, know, did you pop out? Um, they're easy to measure and there's a lot of data on them. And so those models are actually pretty good. And I'm leaning here pretty heavily on Kathy O'Neill's work um, in Weapons of Math Destruction, so I should just say that because her work's so important in describing these kinds of things. Unfortunately, in modeling social processes, we rarely have that kind of clear-cut, objective, neutral, and plentiful information, right? So um, let me give an example from my own work. In the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, what they want to predict and prevent is child fatalities and near fatalities, right? That's what we all want to predict and prevent. Um, but thankfully, um, there is not enough data because there aren't enough occurrences of child fatalities and near fatalities to actually build a model that can, that can aim at that particular thing. So they've used instead what, what are called proxies, which are just stand-ins for the things that you are wanting to model. Um, so in Allegheny County, the, and I'm getting to your race question, you just trust me on this. Um, in Allegheny County, they use two um, proxies rather than actual child maltreatment. The first is called call re-referral, and that just means that there's a phone call um, or a mandated reporter reports. It's screened out by the intake workers as not being um, uh, high enough uh, on the sort of scale of risk to deserve an investigation at that time, and it gets screened out. And then there's a second call on the same family within six months. So that is one of the things that they say, if that is happening, that it, for the model means maltreatment is actually happening, right? The second proxy they use um, is called um, child placement, which means there's a call in a family, uh, it, they've decided they're gonna screen it in for investigation, the family is investigated, and then that child is pulled out of the, eventually pulled out of the family by Children, Youth, and Family Services in the courts and put into foster care. Right? So again, that is based on that model, that means maltreatment has actually occurred. Right? Um, the problem is, of course, they're actually modeling the community's process of who gets reported and the caseworkers, the examining caseworkers and the court's processes of who gets removed from their families. Right? And that's where race plays a huge role. Right? As I already said, Black and biracial families are reported three and a half times more often than white families. Um, and on the other side, though Allegheny County has made some real strides towards removing disproportion in their own process, and it's actually a pretty good CYF department as these things go, um, there is still like massive racial disproportionality in what happens to families inside the child welfare system and in the courts, right? So um, the thing that's really important and slippery around proxies is that they can stand in for these huge constellations of social forces, right? Um, histories of um, discriminatory uh, experiences in criminal justice or in the court system, right? Um, the, the story we tells, tell ourselves about what a healthy family looks like, right? That's actually what's being modeled with who gets called on. It's not who which children are most likely to be harmed, it's who do we think good, how do we think good families look, right? Um, and, um, and the models, uh, the, the Allegheny Family Screening Tool is not gonna solve either of those problems, right? It's not gonna solve the deep inequities that are still in our court systems, and it's not gonna solve the, um, the deep and entirely incorrect social and cultural understandings we have about what a healthy family looks like, right? Um, and so often I feel like these tools are solutions in search of problems, uh, and they can divert us from actually uh, attacking the most important, the most pressing problems, the places where most of the disproportion, disproportion is actually coming from. I also want to say that while racial disproportion is crucial, crucial, crucial in the system, the whole system is based on the assumption that poor families are dangerous to kids. Uh, more dangerous to kids than professional middle class families. And there's a kind of class discrimination that are built into these systems um, that is equally important and equally important to, um, to address. Right? So long answer, but great question. Um, thank you so much.
Um, hi. Thank you so much. This has really been wonderful to listen to. I am an adjunct at Cleveland State, and I teach social welfare policy to Yay. both bachelor level and master level social workers. Amazing. And you know, when they come in, this is a required course, no matter where you're becoming a BSW and MSW, and they hate it, most of them, because they want to do direct service, and they can't imagine what does policy have to do with anything. And so, you know, part of what my job is is to help them become really cynical and then still send them out and be positive and help change the world, which is what most of them come in wanting to do. Yeah. And they do get pretty depressed during the course of the during the course of the semester because they realize you know, where the invisible hands are and they're not invisible to them anymore and they still just wanna go out and help. And we talk a lot about systems um, and the role that the systems play and the role that the people who are in the systems play because really when you come down to it, if we don't change the people, then we're still gonna have some bad systems. Yeah. So my question to you is, because you did mention that you your work involves speaking with caseworkers, yep. what advice and what have you found in terms of um, helping them not necessarily combat these systems, because I think that's something they really think they don't wanna do, but NASW Code of Ethics requires them to be advocates in a way that they are reluctantly often coming to accept. What is your advice to them in terms of facing these kinds of issues that you're describing in the systems as they do their profession of social work? Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Um, I have a lot to say about this, and I'm gonna to try to keep it really short. Um, so what I want is a system that values the expertise of social workers, and that values the expertise of families requesting support from public services. Um, I want a system that sees folks not as um, uh, potentially fraudulent, but as potentially a resource in um, a self, being a self-determining part of uh, solving their own problems, right? I think that's what we should want for everyone in, in a democracy. Thank you over there. <laughs> um, um, and one of my um, real concerns, uh, or one of, my, um, one of my organizing points for this, for this narrative, one of the things I kept in mind, was the moment that we see this thing I just I describe as the digital poorhouse arise, which I actually thought had maybe happened in the 90s or the 80s around the policy changes and the availability of the technology, actually happened in the late 60s and the early 70s. And part of the reason, I believe, one, it was the National Welfare Rights Movement. Like, that's really important. It opened up these programs. They had, had legal successes overturning discriminatory eligibility rules. Um, and they were massively visible in incredibly important ways. But I think one of the big shocks to the system right around 1968 was when 8,000 public caseworkers went on strike in New York City, not for their own employment contract, but for the rights of their clients, right? So 8,000 caseworkers walked out on their jobs and said, we will not come back until you ease these rules and make it easier for families in need to get support. Um, and they won, right? And the next year is when you see these electronic systems start to be embedded in these systems, right? So I think there's something enormously threatening about actual allyship and actual solidarity across that desk. Um, as a welfare rights organizer myself, um, until very recently, um, I understand deeply how hard that conversation is, right? Because caseworkers are the front line of a system that is dehumanizing, um, that can divert you from your needs, that can lose, your ch can, can lose you your children. And so it's really hard to foster those conversations, um, but it also is um, enormously threatening to the status quo, and it is in the past what has worked. Um, so I'm really interested in creating space for those conversations to happen. I, I really appreciate the work that you do um, to prepare your students for those conversations. Um, and I, I believe that people are there, right? Like what I see on the ground right now is that folks on the other side of the desk, folks on the caseworker side, are just like a paycheck away from being on the other side of the desk. Um, and I mean, what an important moment to remove discretion from caseworkers, <laughs> right? Um, and that's just really clear in the, in, the, in the actual reporting, right? So in Indiana, when um, Governor Mitch Daniels was talking about this system, he stumped around the state saying, you know, the, one of the most dangerous things in the system is when caseworkers and clients 
um, collaborate, or no, he didn't even use the word collaborate. He used the word, what's the criminal word for collaborate? Collude, collude to defraud the state, right? And he went around talking about the specific case in Indianapolis where a church had colluded with two caseworkers to defraud the state of several tens of thousands of dollars by setting up dummy food stamps accounts. It happens, right? And fraud is bad, and we shouldn't stand for fraud. But that he chose that particular case, also a black church, by the way, that he chose that particular case to stump this system around really said a lot about what he believed the solution to public assistance is. And the solution is cut that relationship off. Like, do not let caseworkers care about clients. Don't let clients develop relationships with caseworkers. And so I think we have to be really cautious where these systems are, um, because it's not the administrators or the, see, now I'm being really honest. Um, <laughs> can I hit the gong? Um, <laughs> it's not the, the folks who are designing these systems who are going to lose their jobs, right? It's not the folks designing these systems who are going to be um, whose discretion and whose competence is being questioned, right? It's the folks on the front line. Um, and I don't think, while I don't think that's intentional, I don't think it's um, accidental, uh, and I don't think the consequences of that are unpredictable, right? And so I really believe we need to intervene on that, like, right fast. Because um, it's also a, it's an employment issue, right? It's also not surprising that many of this, the states who go whole hog into these automated systems are also not offering contracts, say, um, or, or busting unions um, in, in the states where caseworkers have, have traditionally unionized, right? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Great question. That was the short version of my answer. I have other things to say. But. Uh, yes, I appreciate your comments earlier, uh, but I want you to touch on basically about some of the convergence you discussed uh, outside of just welfare, but also because welfare involves children and family services, also brings in judicial processes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, people, he's talked about homelessness. You can also talk about uh, uh, housing, utilities, and a number of activities that seem to come together on individuals. And then the other question would be, have you identified any type of uh, ideal systems that show where the baseline, the base level that you talk about where people shouldn't slip below has worked in other communities or uh, other parts of the world? Yeah, thank you so much for those questions. Um, so one of the one of the things that uh, is really, I think, crucial is one of the real tensions in this work is really what you're pointing to, which is that um, integrating systems, integrating digital systems, can be incredibly important to lowering barriers to services. Right. So part of how we divert people from public assistance or from homeless services. Um, is uh, by making applications so difficult. Um, and so uh, like you have to go uh, fill out a 30-page form and stand in this line for home heating assistance. And then you have to go to another building in another part of town and fill out basically the same form and stand in line all day for food assistance. And then you, you, know, you have to keep going. This is part of the budget line in public assistance um, known as diversion, right? Um, is making these systems so hard to navigate. So, integrating these systems actually has great potential to lower barriers um, to receiving services. The problem is in the context in the United States of the criminalization of poverty, lowering these barriers and integrating these systems also means this incredible net of digital surveillance that connects to law enforcement, that connects to um, the courts, um, that and that connects to other uh, agencies where people um, have less positive outcomes. Um, so for example, in Los Angeles, I talked about the coordinated entry system. So one of the reasons that folks like Gary Boatwright have started to look at this system, Gesundheit, um, started to look at this system with some suspicion and some concern is that um, the survey that you have to take to get into coordinated entry, it has this terrible acronym, it's called the VI-SPDAT, the um, Vulnerability Index and Service Prioritization Decision Assistance Tool. Um, uh, so the VI-SPDAT asks some incredibly intrusive, invasive questions. So it asks, um, are you currently having unprotected sex? It asks, are you trading sex for drugs? It asks if someone thinks um, that you owe them money. It asks if there's an open warrant on you. It asks if you're thinking of harming yourself or someone else. It asks where you can be found at different times of the day. And it asks to take your picture. 
Um, and that information is all put in a homeless management information system that those algorithms, that those ranking and matching algorithms are run on. Um, now, uh, folks do sign a really comprehensive informed consent form, though it's hard to say it's truly voluntary if coordinated entry then becomes the main gateway through which all housing services are passed. It's hard to say that it's actually voluntary, saying like, I want to be part of this system. Um, and uh, a part of that informed consent process is you go through, you sign off, it lasts for seven years, it's almost impossible to get expunged from, truly expunged from the system. Um, and you have to request um, a second set of papers that tell you who the information is being shared with, which turns out to be 100, and these folks are unhoused, right? So where, where are you gonna get those papers? It's hard to get those papers. Uh, it turns out it's 168 different agencies um, that share that information, and under current federal data standards, um, not all of this information, but some of it in HMIS is available to law enforcement based only on an oral request. No warrant, no oversight, like a line officer can just walk into a social service office and ask for information out of HMIS. You are not required to give it to them. I think it's really important to say that, but you are allowed under the federal data standards to give it to them. I think if we really cared about providing resources rather than criminalizing poverty, that we would immediately change the federal data standard to say law enforcement can never access this for any reason. Like we should not mix law enforcement and homeless services. Like it doesn't make sense um, unless you're um, looking to criminalize the homeless. Um, and so yeah, these systems cross over on a really deep level. But you know, I heard a solutions question from you and I'm getting the, the side eye over here. So I'm gonna do it really, really fast. Um, in the remaining two minutes, I'm gonna lift up the incredible work of an organization in Chicago called M Relief, lowercase m for mobile. Um, and one of the things that's amazing about M Relief um, is that they basically have an app um, that collects your information um, and then rather than releasing it to the state um, through the forms that we use um, online to apply for public assistance, um, they kind of hold it back as a third-party data provider and they ping the systems to see if you're actually going to be eligible before releasing your information. So for my family, when we applied for food stamps, one of the scariest things is you have to go through like 40 pages of this form that you have to fill everything out before the arrow will let you go to the next page. And then at the end, there's just a button that says like apply. And you don't know if you're gonna be eligible. Like you're releasing all of this really incredibly intense information about your family. How many refrigerators do you have in your house? And do you eat together with your partner? And like, did your cousin ever live with you? And how many rooms are in your house, right? And you're just, this is a huge vote of faith to just hit that button and say like, I hope you only use that to determine my eligibility, but I don't really know. So what Emrelief does is it holds on to that information, make sure you're gonna be eligible, and then it checks back in with you to say, it looks like you're gonna be eligible, do you want us to release your information? Um, and they've also done a lot of really other incredible things. Uh, they go on to help you step through the process step by step, including like pictures of like what the door to the office looks like. Um, directions to get there. Um, up until now, they've been able to offer people Uber rides to the office to make sure they make their appointments. So the thing that I think is really different about M Relief is that they come from a welfare rights perspective, right? They come from this perspective that says the point of these systems is to get you every single entitlement that you um, are eligible for and deserve, and that claiming those is a political act. Right? So they come from this point of view that doesn't just have the values of efficiency and cost saving, but all of our values in mind. Um, so self-determination, um, you know, justice, equity, due process. Um, and that's really where I think we need to start in order to produce better tools that don't automate inequality. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. You can stay in the gun, but you have to wait until I finish to close it out. Okay. Um, today at the City Club, we're enjoying a forum. All of us, all of us are enjoying this forum with Dr. Virginia Eubanks, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University at Albany, SUNY, and author of Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile Police and Punish the Poor. Dr. Eubanks is delivering today the Eugene H. Friedheim Lecture of the Center for Community Solutions. We appreciate your support and partnership. Our forum today is also part of our Resilient Family Series sponsored by the St. Luke's Foundation and the William J. and Dorothy K. O'Neill Foundation. Representatives of both foundations are with us today. We appreciate your continued support of City Club programming. Also, 
Dr. You guys all helped to do this too, because Dr. Eubanks appears as part of our Authors in Conversation series, supported in part by residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful to many of you here for your support of City Club programming through that public grant. Book sales are made possible by our partners at a cultural exchange, and Dr. Eubanks will be signing copies immediately following the forum. And we welcome guests today at tables hosted by the IoT Collaborative, the Legal Aid Society of Greater Cleveland, and the Scholar Strategy Network. We thank all of you for joining us today. That brings us to the end of our forum. Thank you, Dr. Eubanks. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Our forum is adjourned. Well done. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.